Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike, not Will Anderson, just doing the intro at the top of this week's episode with Julia Morris because Will is super busy, so he has asked me to do the intro for this week's episode. Julia Morris is our guest today. Her book, Julia Morris Makes It Easy, is out now on Audible. Julia talks all about her book in this chat with Will. It is a fantastic chat where Julia talks all about her journey uh, in comedy and uh, living overseas and uh, just her experiences in the Australian comedy landscape. A lot of you will know Julia as the incredible host alongside Dr. Chris Brown uh, on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And uh, man, she's hilarious on that show. It was an absolute pleasure to uh, listen to and edit this chat. Will would also love to plug his show, Will Eagle. Uh, The next available shows for that are in Wagga Wagga, Saturday the 12th and Sunday the 13th of June at the Wagga Wagga Civic Theatre. Go and grab uh, tickets to that. And I believe that uh, Wagga Wagga is uh, an incredibly relevant city for Will to be doing that show in. I've seen the show and it's really funny, so I highly recommend you grab tickets to that. If you like Willosophy and want to hear more Willosophy, head to patreon.com slash Willosophy and you can uh, donate a little bit of money each month to help keep the lights on here and help support all the fantastic people that help uh, keep this show running, including James Fosdyke, who does all the amazing art, Taylor McLean, our social person, And of course, if we hit a consistent $5,000 a month, we will bring you not one, but two episodes of Willosophy every week. So please go and donate there. And of course, Willosophy Pod on Instagram. uh, And I believe Willosophy Pod on Twitter as well, if you want to interact with us there. Uh, But for now, please enjoy this fantastic chat with Julia Morris on Willosophy. And welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And uh, well, this is how the show starts. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? I'm Lady Julia Morris of Gosford. Hello, Lady Julia Morris of Gosford. We were having quite a little natter. We have not caught up for a little while. We used to see each other quite a bit for a while. And now we haven't seen each other for a very long time. So I'm excellently looking forward to this conversation today. I think the last time we might have caught up um, would have been when we were both spending some time living in Los Angeles. So um, there's definitely something incredibly social about being in Los Angeles and being, you know, each set of Aussies uh, seem to go and and set up their own little, um, little Australia. It's always the great irony of when Australians judge other nationalities for coming to this country and they're sticky with their own people. And then I'm like, have you been an Australian overseas? It's have you not been the court? Yeah. It's not the same when we do it. Come on, we're just hanging with mates. But them, furious. <laughs> Why don't they mix in with the rest of the community? Anyway, we're going to be at this Australian pub in LA. You'll be home among the gum trees. <laughs> <laughs> Let's invite Paul Kelly over to sing. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. 
Uh, so this podcast, uh, I ask people if they have a philosophy towards something, and I think uh, this is going to be a pretty easy one to tick off with you today. So, uh, Lady Julia Morris of Gosford, what is your philosophy? Well, I didn't realise that this is my mm. philosophy, and but over the last 12 months, of course, with life slowing down, I've had a chance for that Rolodex of my brain to to roll out with a, just a couple of different ideas. And I thought, you know what? As a celebrity, you know a lot of, a lot of stuff. Mm. You, I mean, I'm not only incredibly important, but you do actually know a lot of stuff. <laughs> and it seems to me that within the self-help genre, uh-huh. there's a lot of cash to be claimed. Mm. So uh, my philosophy I made out of the easy system, I've, obviously the name I've taken as you will know from my, from my nickname over the years, uh, and, I've, and I've created an acronym uh, that, that is a way of life, uh-huh. and the E stands for expectations, and I encourage you to lower them as, as low as you can. Let go of those hopes. Let go of those dreams because, my God, does it free up a lot of brain space. You're like, am I really going to lose that tire of fat around my waist? Probably not. Let it go. There it is. Enjoy the tire. Draw some stripes on it. Whatever. Make it a mag. Uh, so the ex- lowering expectations means if I just expected from today that I'm just going to get out of bed, I'm sorry, sir, but I've already nailed it. Do you see what I'm saying? Lowering expectations. So the A is for arming, arming yourself, armour, and getting strong against people not enjoying the fact that you're going to be doing a lot of extra lying down or doing what you want. You love you love gardening, for example. So they're going to push back against that, but you're going to arm yourself with your blind self-confidence. So you're going to be like the honey badger. You're just not going to give a shit. Do you know what I mean? It's going to be the best. Then the S is for stop doing all You're the talking about the literal honey badger, by the way, right? The not actual the, animal. Not the dude oh. from the series of The Bachelor. I mean, please, I beg you, go on the interline and look up the honey badger. <laughs> there is an unbelievable video clip of someone voicing it over. It's like, the honey badger, he doesn't give a shit. It's very funny. And the honey badger is hardcore. That's another story. And then the S, yes, stop doing all the stuff you don't want to do, which as celebrities, um, we do have a, uh, you know, if you want to, don't want to go to something, you're ringing like, I- I'm not going, which is a great good fortune in life because I never want to go outside the door of my private home. But sometimes you just have to. So if you're going to have to, cancel everything else. But I also like um, saying that I will attend and then I like cancelling on the night. I find that's a very effective way of getting that extra time that you weren't expecting. Sitting on the bed at that moment of what am I going to wear, and then you know what? Pick up the phone, cancel. Doesn't even matter if it's dinner with friends. Doesn't matter if you're cooking it. Doesn't matter. Because within the cancellation, you're like, oh, it's two seconds of disappointment, but the rest of the night's all yours. <laughs> oh, my God. Which leads us to the why, which uh-huh. is yippee, because can you imagine all of the sweet, sweet relaxing you're going to get to do when you've cancelled everything? This system, I mean, it's not a system. It is a way of life. Okay, so I'm very interested in this because I think it is emblemic of our times. So cancelled plans used to be the best of all plans, right? But then we've just spent, you know, 12 months, you know, and going into probably another 12 months by the time, you know, it all resolves itself of, you know, on a global scale, all plans being cancelled. So how did you actually deal with the fact that suddenly it wasn't just one night of cancelled plans. It wasn't one day of having to stay in bed. It was an entire year of pretty much the entire world being told that same thing. Look, it it gave me such a joy in my heart 
that I didn't have to do anything. I, did, I didn't know. I, I was going to say I didn't know what to do with myself, but I, I wrote a book. But <laughs> the joy of not even picking up the phone. I didn't even pick up uh, the phone most of the time. I, it was, I was lucky if I returned a text message, which unfortunately does lead to those moments where, you like, where people think, oh, have I done something to offend you? I don't even answer that. <laughs> you know what? Fuck them. No, I don't mean to be mean, um, but people kind of are starting to know that about me now. I, I do love a cancellation of plans. I mean, one day I'll be cancelled. I see it coming a mile off. I'm going to say some stupid thing that's inappropriate at the time and I'll be cancelled. So I'm going to get into the cancel swing right now. Oh, let's be honest, Julia. Chances are you've already said it. People just haven't found it yet. That's actually how it works. <laughs> like We both know. I mean, where is it hiding? Oh, honestly, I've really tried to rack back through my brain. I'm like, is it... Is there anything that could come to light? I don't think there's anything because I've been so outrageously upfront mm. through the years. But who knows? I will have offended someone somewhere. I mean, just by speaking or being breathing, I'm offending someone. I mean, so, Dan, a lot of the time, to be fair. I'm interested in easy as a philosophy because it seems counterintuitive in some ways to what it is that I know about you, which is that, like you said, like, yes, you have this plan that is about, you know, turning down plans and lowering expectations and staying in bed. But during a global pandemic when nobody else was doing much, you know, you hosted a big TV show, you've written a book, you know, like... You, you, like no wonder I want to be at home. <laughs> do you know what I mean? There really is. Is this like, a cry for help? There's two things happening at the exact same time. One is lowering expectations and take it easy, and the one is the reality of what you're doing, which is to continue to do things. Mate, you should have seen all the work I cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you one job I didn't bother with, and that was child-rearing. I'm just like, you know what, mummy's taking the year off. <laughs> How did you deal with the fact that kids had to stay home and be educated? I... Actually, I mean, this is not going to be funny, but it's truthful. Mm. I really loved being in the house with my family for a year. I really loved it. Like for the first six weeks, Dan and I fought. Oh, my God. We were in a, we, the psychologist that we both see calls it being in our corners and fighting from there. And I was just like, oh, yeah. I was so objectionable and Dan was so full of instructions. And those two, I, you know what, the, uh, the psychologist said us to us years ago, um, Dan, you could loosen the noose and Julia, you could turn up a bit more. <laughs> that was great life advice actually from someone else other than a celebrity. They weren't even a celebrity and they had good advice. And so I, I love this idea though because you are like, I mean, the idea of lowering expectations is not something I ever associate with it. Like in, in your world, what I actually say is that you are a person who has looked at the world and thought there was nothing that you couldn't possibly do. I, that is certainly um, the appearance, but the truth is I think I work a lot to counteract the fact that I feel like in my heart I'm quite lazy. Mm. So, like, I'm not lazy because I still do the washing and the pottering and whatever. I mean, I shouldn't be saying that. As a celebrity, I have a lot of people in to do those jobs. Now I get home and do those jobs. I'll clean the house. I'm mad for it. I'll get in the right state of mind and I'll just go, I'll go like a maniac. I, I, I couldn't be more delighted with choring it out around the private home. But um, the chance to notice things, the chance, and, and by that I mean like with the children in particular, 
is that there really was a for the first time in a long time, proper time for DMs. Even though I have a great connection with my girls, and as you know, yes, we travel a lot for work, but it's only ever for two or three days. It's never for months at a time. And if it is, the family come with me. So the chance to be still at home, I mean, thank God I was home for that and not locked out of the state because they definitely needed both of us to help them through and try and navigate this, you know, they're a bit, children are a bit like dogs in that they don't really know that they're, they're very much in the, in the now they've not got any sort of delayed gratification kind of links. So they can't see that it's all fine or there will be a silver lining or all they see is, you know, the stupid numbers ticking over on people dying and getting stressed. And Sophie, our youngest, she's 11. She's already like, cause we're like, are you worried about, you know, life and what the planet's going to be like. And she's like, no, you guys have ruined it. And we already know that that's the, that's what we're getting. That's what's going to get handed to us. And the debt that we're going to have to cover. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I used to fly a lot, but I can't see how I contributed to it. (laughs) So interesting. I was, I got a proper, proper understanding of where they're up to because instead of handing them over to the school for however many hours a day, I got to have them here and hear all sorts of little thoughts along the way. So while it was a disaster on so many levels, um, it it did it did bring loads and loads of shards of joy. Okay, and so self help is an interesting area because particularly celebrity self help, you know, because let's be honest, it's never been a more ridiculous time for celebrities. Let me get an undercarriage candle smell, and I'm going to sell that. What? That is what made up. That's really where the where the book came from because Dan and I were laughing about it last year. Dan yeah. loves a self help book because he he loves the uh, the philosophical side of things. He did philosophy at uni, so he. I mean, I I'd rather I'd rather knife myself than read a self help book, and I'd rather knife myself than read a book. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's good that you've written one then. Oh, look, I never, ever read anything I haven't written. And so, <laughs> and we were saying, like, where do people get off? Where Are you so deluded in your weird celebrity high chair, in your beautiful home, that, and, and then I guess, I guess having loads of money and loads of time leaves you loads of moments to think about how you think about things. And that maybe would lead you to, I think I should tell other people because I'm actually amazing. The blind self-confidence obviously goes along with being a celebrity anyway. But then to think that you should be able to instruct people on how to live their lives, you're just like, why don't you do a video clip called Imagine and just get everyone in it? It's going to be amazing. (laughs) The contribution issues are extraordinary and I just thought, I need to weigh in on this area. (laughs) (laughs) We can't just let all these idiots monetize it. I should have some of that. I'll tell you what I really did love uh, was, which I know that through your podcast you will have fallen in love uh, with this way of doing things, but I loved, I wasn't just reading my book. It was like a stand-up performance, having spent sort of 12 months off the stage and not being able to tour and having to keep handballing, handballing, handballing on the tour. Um, and that's and that's all sorts of people touring, as you know. At the moment, in different cities, there's like 75% capacity in the theatres, which is amazing. Please, please, please come to the theatre. But uh, particularly as a solo artist, as comedians are, 
we don't even we wouldn't even break even until you're well into the up into the 80 percent so all of a sudden i'm laying out 50 15 percent of the total cost myself to to do what so audible gave me um the opportunity to be able to tell read the book and tell stories like i was doing stand-up so it was super i mean it took ages to record it was so much fun so um that was a way of, of getting through last year and trying to feed that hungry adrenaline beast for sure. Because I'm really interested in that, like what, you know, what role an audience normally plays in your work and how much you missed, you know, having that audience available to you. Oh, well, as you, as you would well know, um, there is nothing like the supercharged injection of the crack and wave of a big audience laugh. You know, you've got 2,000 people, well, I played you know, between 1,500 and 2,000 seaters uh, when I'm doing a big tour in major cap- capital cities. I mean, it makes a nice difference from our early days of um, Edinburgh where you play a 60-seater and if you sold out, you thought you were literally going to be on the front page of the Scotsman. <laughs> I've sold 60 seats, guys. This is amazing. But everyone starts somewhere. So in those big theatres, that lovely exchange, you know, it's definitely this lovely uh passing of energy between the two of us. And I think, oh, my God, if you love that one, wait till you see the one that's coming. It gives us so much joy to bring joy. Uh, just a quick little side note because just mostly just for you because you'll enjoy this, and but for the listeners as well. You know, we all start in humble beginnings. The first time that I went to Edinburgh was 1999 and I was uh, sharing a flat with a fellow by the name of David Hughes, David William Hughes. And uh, in my first week, seven shows, I sold a total, a total over those seven shows of 35 tickets and the only thing that made that okay was that Husey had only sold 27 <laughs> so at least in our flat I was king of the hill oh my god Husey oh you're gonna get a few more um well you know Edinburgh my goodness that's something that I would uh, the, the festival didn't happen. Oh, no, it's August, isn't it? So it didn't happen last year, though. No, didn't happen last year. And, uh, I mean, I guess there'd still be a question mark over festivals again this year. I mean, in Australia, we're trying. Like, you know, Perth Fringe has happened in, you know, bits. it's been, got shut down for a little while, started again. A- Adelaide Fringe, a little bit the same. We're such great supporters of comedy in Australia. We've been very well trained, I think, from the Melbourne Comedy Festival and out, you know, from Melbourne Comedy Festival, Sydney Comedy Festival, Perth Comedy Festival, Brisbane, they have an Adelaide, duh, around, my brain's not working, but um, it, it, people come out of their homes to watch live stand-up and, uh, and people will be missing those sort of laughs and at the same time, of course, um, comedians, are, we're desperately missing our audiences. But and you don't want to look like you know, a featured extra on the stupid internet all the time, annoying people every time you want to put, do a bit of output, you know, that, that, that hungry, hungry beast needs to be fed somehow. <laughs> so when, when do you think you'll be back in front of people? Do you have plans? Have you done a show since like, you've been able to do shows? Have you been back on stage in front of people? No, no, I haven't. So, um, no, I, I, if I, I'm meant to be touring in May, so I think decisions are being made about that at the moment from exactly what we were talking about before um, is to try and work out, is it going to be viable? Am I going to fly into a city and that city is going to be shut down? There's so It's so incredibly difficult uh, to predict what's going to go on. So, I mean, you know, I'm loathed to postpone again and May 
may even consider cancelling and then just pulling up a, another whole show next year that will have all the the lovely rich blood from this year's show. I don't know. I don't even know if that's going to happen. I'm literally speaking out of my ass, but um, I'm hoping to get back on the stage. When, when was the last show that you did? Do you remember the last time you were on stage in front of people? Um, well, it's a bit it's a bit unusual. Because of the jungle and performing every single night, doing that hour and a half and sometimes two hours live to air, that's very much a performance. So that feels like you're on stage anyway because it's so exaggerated and so over the top with Dr. Chris and I being incredibly silly and trying to nail physical jokes at the same time as not looking like we're reading and all that sort of stuff. So that I feel very match fit for the stage. But, of course, as we all know, it's like a football player going, oh, you know, I, I lift weights. I'll, I'll be ready for a game. Mm, no, not a premiership game. So. <laughs> so I'm pretending I'm match fit. Who knows when I'll get on the stage. I, I'm also very lazy and don't like to leave the house so it's been a long 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 time since i've been in venues i really only tour every two years now and do the major cities and then do a few venues leading up to it i'm i'm um as mike wilmot said years ago i'm not so much a stand-up i'm more an evening with (laughs) (laughs) i'm like mike i I would take offence to that, except it's actually very factual. Oh my god, that is so funny. Well, it's 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 not factual in regards to the actual show because you are a force of nature on stage, and what you do is most definitely stand up. It's not an evening with, but fuck that, fuck that's a good joke. That's such a that's oh a god, such a Mike good Wilmot. Joke. How long is it since I haven't seen Mike Wilmot since the dawn of time? God love him. Uh, have you seen him since he lost all his weight? Oh, he's so tiny. I, I do often. I will. Ha- Often head into town, and um, that's the only time. I mean, not most of the time. I'm like, oh, please, I'd rather, I'd rather eat razor blades and go and watch stand up. And I know that's not appropriate <laughs> to say it out loud, but I'm just like, I'm not a comedian's comedian. I'm just like, do I have to sit in that room in the dark and not talk for an hour? Why would I do that? Laugh at other people's jokes that I do not want them to. S- plant any seeds that later I'll be going, oh, my God, this is an amazing joke I've just wrote. Oh, no, maybe it's a piggyback. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Don't cloud the old lady brain. Don't do it. How does your brain work in a comedic sense, particularly, you know, in a, in a stand-up comedy sense? Because, like, people can listen to you now. Like, you, there is a density in your language. There is a – you have your own unique language. You know, you have a million jokes, you know. Some of them probably, like, jokes that you roll around a few times. Some of them are just coming off the top of your head as you go. Like, But it's – but you wouldn't know. Like, I mean, I might know. I might kind of have a sense of going, oh, yeah, okay, cool. She said that before or whatever. But – there's a certain um, expectation of arrival. Right. Even if it's a second, <laughs> where you're like, this is going to be amazing, guys, is what I'm yes. thinking. Yes. <laughs> But what is yeah what what is that process yeah exactly when you're doing a show what how does it come together I have what, to be forced at gunpoint by Beck my agent and Dan into a room because the thought of sitting and writing oh my god I mean can't I just sit on the couch and eat raspberry bullets um, I. I pretend that I'm going to write things in notes through the year because I've got two years in between each time I tour. You're like, that's heaps of time. Even if I had 12 notes, I mean, that's whatever. Because stories happen along the way. And oftentimes um, the conflict is often where my best stories come from. So I will be, you know, um, say, for example, there's a story in the book where I go to order fried eggs in Byron Bay 
And the girls like the chef won't emotionally connect with eggs. I mean, okay, I'm already, the engines have just turned on. You you fucking take your life in your own hands from here, lady love. And so then then I'm like, but there's an egg on the burger. Mm. Yeah, for the burger, yeah. What? So I'm like, well, can you bring me the burger but hold the bun, hold the burger, hold the lettuce, hold hold all the stuff and just bring me two fucking fried eggs and a bit of white toast. Like it's just not a huge leap. She's like, no, the chef won't do it. The chef, by the way, the chef. Okay. Anyway, then uh, so I just thought, you know what, which I don't say this out loud in the book but I'll say it for you. I just thought, fuck you and the mung bean you rode in on. I'll have two burgers, thank you. Because you know how the mung beans fucking hate wasted food. So the two burgers come out and I just flick flack the eggs. I get that. <laughs> Put the eggs on a plate, with my side of toast. Guess what I won? One. That one. <laughs> a lot of tips like that. So you have to be very difficult with your behaviour when you're out and about. So, but yeah, but but what you're saying is that that, like, that feels to me like you do need to be out and about to be seeing the world, to interact for these stories to actually arise. Like you can't have these conflicts from the safety of your own home. My God, you could try. But you could do like a Zoom <laughs> argument story. Anyway, I was on Zoom the other day. <laughs> well, the bummer about that is you can just get up and walk away, can't you? Right. No, not when you're face-to-face with a $100 breakfast. <laughs> so from that moment where I'm, oh, my God, that day, look, uh, uh, there's just some, I mean, I, I can't even go on about how many levels of, I'm going straight back to that, all that fury, even thinking about that story. So then I take that and then I write the name of that story down and that's my writing for the show. So I know I'm going to tell uh, b- um, egg story. So when it comes to the night, um, sometimes I'll have a little cheat sheet. I did see it with Joan Rivers years ago. She just had like little words, little topper words written on big things on the stage. I'll have something a bit more subtle than that, but I'm like, where am I up to? What day is it? But I can, as you would no doubt not be shocked to hear, I, I could just turn on the microphone and talk for an hour and a half. And have you ever just done that? Like has there been shows where you've literally just gone, I'm not going to prepare anything? Like literally I don't even have that cheat sheet. I'm just going to go out there and assume. Because it feels like, you know, with a touring show, like a festival show, it's it's definitely a lot more uh, shaped into having that lovely moment. Sometimes I'll take people for a little almost, am I going to I don't know, teary moment, and then we'll go up for the, that sort of feels like my pattern where it feels a bit more authentic rather than just. And It's not stand-up, it's an evening with. It's very much an evening with, actually. And so, but stand-up wise, uh, that was most of my stand-up career because certainly for the early part, for about four years, I was the resident MC at the Comedy Store in Sydney. That would have been about 90 from 1991 maybe um and uh, you just couldn't do the same material every single night i ended up doing all my hits when i'd go for when i like moved to the uk and did gigs there and you do get a little bit lazy with your big hits well i do you're, i know you're a prolific writer but um c- certainly when i was emceeing all that time it's not the moment for material. So that was the moment to go off the leash and just let the brain go. I, I find that stand up where you get a word 
and come out and go. I find that horrifying. Um, but I also, because of the blind self-confidence, I'd be happy to give it a go. <laughs> uh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by you as a stand-up because that's, I think, you know, to the broader world, you are so many other things, but I guess, you know, I prioritize stand-up as such a, you know, bigger part of the world. You know, it's what I do for a living. It's what I love. And shapes everything else and you know you are such a you know brilliant live performer like you know you are a person who there are people in comedy who can just kill a room and you are one of those people like you're a you're a murderer you're a killer like yeah you need to bring some chalk to the gig for the outlines around the bodies after you have just murdered a room full of people that is what happens when you go on stage i've usually peppered the room with friends to be fair but yeah thank you very (laughs) much well then you have a lot of friends for somebody who's not turning (laughs) any course is what I would also suggest. But um, as you um, have like navigated the rest of your career, you know, stand up has come sort of in and out of it. Like you said, you know, it has sometimes been the focus. Sometimes it's not been the focus. It's taken on you. And sometimes it has saved my life. When I moved to the UK, I just was like, oh, like seriously, Will, I thought I'm like, not only is the UK waiting for me because I'd been up to the Edinburgh Festival. There weren't a lot of women my age at that time. When I moved to the UK, it would have been in my 30s so if they're in their 30s they're already very successful like a Davina McCall like a Jenny Eclair uh, that level of girls were already up and in the system if that makes sense they already had television shows doing big tours they're already big stars then there's the little sweet sort of early 20s beginners some amazing voices through there some you know some not as experienced and they felt like there was this missing bit uh this of, of the female voice um, from I think I must have been 28 I was. So in that weird 30s area of the next set of problems beyond the 20s is, you know, I feel like I've gone through problems for each of those age, age groups within my stand-up through my life. So I thought I'll go to the UK. Two seconds later I'll have my own show, Stand By. Like, watch this. This is going to be amazing. And then it really wasn't very long into it before I realised, oh, my God, I am literally going to have to go out. The only way that I knew how to earn quickly was to go and do stand-up gigs. And as you would know, to do that in the UK, you start with, I mean, maybe a year of free gigs. So you're travelling right out to Bristol for the night and they're like, oh, not many audience turned up tonight. Your share is £17. And, you know, your your train fare would have cost you 40 So. Getting back to stand-up, trying to work out what was funny about me, I think I'd had such a luxury from being on television from my early 20s that when I would come to the stage, I'd already have a relationship with the audience. So they were already laughing. If they liked me, they were already laughing when I came out. So coming out on stage in the UK where no one knew or cared and there's that fine line of I'm Australian so why should I be telling you what Britain's like? Um, it was uh, it was necessary to eat for me to reignite and get match fit, exactly like uh, the footballers, is get completely match fit in stand-up because with the UK you've got your 15 minutes on stage unless you're headlining, which, you know, you've got to do 950,000 gigs before you'll ever get to headline, even though I'd been a headliner at that stage for 10 years, um, they they wanted you to come and do the free gigs in the club. So all of a sudden 
uh, any old material went away and then that's when I started to uh, do a lot more writing, do a lot more observations and get back into the swing of things and worked like a dog to then climb to the next stage because I'd forgotten all those stages that you climb up through as, you, as you're, you know, um, on your way to whatever you think your destination is. And so the next thing was audience warm-ups. So I then went and did that breathtakingly thankless <laughs> <laughs> of warming up the audience while the real stars were, that's what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be doing the show that I was warming up for. And I had it in my mind, talk about blind self-confidence. I'm like, I'm going to go and do their warm-ups and um, guess what's going to happen then? Uh, they're going to write me in to the show. Um, yeah, no. Nah. I was going to say, did it ever happen? Yeah, with um, Lee Mack and not going out. I did the audience warm-ups for that and then they, uh, but I did both jobs on the night, by the way. Oh, <laughs> Because I'm nuts. So I was doing the audience warm-ups. Because I'm like, I can, please, I can do a 55-hour gig. I've got no problem with actoring in your sitcom and then stepping off and doing the audience warm-ups. It just makes me so down to earth. Watch this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what a knuckle. Uh, so, so you did that in the UK, you know, and, like, build a career in the UK. And building but- up that lover stand-up again, for sure. Even though television is always, I don't know what, t- television and and musical comedy were always my destination. And I think throughout the course of my career, I guess that destination has changed a couple of times, but there's just something about being on the television that I love. I never even had a big want to be in, in movies in cinema, but I just love the television. It's a love affair I've had since I was a kid. So I'm fascinated in that because I love watching television like i'm a huge consumer of television like television is probably you know like i mean i you know everyone watches tv but i love tv particularly during this lockdown time i've watched everything and it turns out i have a, a variety of tastes like we are deep into some rupaul's drag race at the moment and i couldn't be happier so i've always been a big consumer of tv a lover of tv but i've always had a, a complicated relationship with actually appearing on it. I'm not a huge fan of appearing on television. Like I, you know, funnily enough, I haven't really done that much television over my career, you know, a few panel shows and stuff, but I've just had a couple of shows that I have done that I've done for a long time. It feels like I've done lots of TV, but like we've only done like 140 episodes of Gruen or something over, it's just been over 12 years, 13 years. So it, it feels like it's a lot more than it is. I want to know what your love of television is. What is it that you love about it? What is it that I love about it? I love <laughs> I love seeing myself on it. <laughs> really? Like you do? Like do you watch yourself on it like Larry Sanders style? Oh no, I, I, well these days there's too much volume for me to watch. So like for example, this is the first year I've ever seen a series of The Jungle. I've never seen it. Like a lot of people will watch their performances back to see whether they can make it better or whatever. Not just assumed it was amazing. And so watching it back this year I'm like, "Oh dear. Have I been doing that for seven years? Is that the way? I'm very annoying. Um, I said, I'm like, sit it down, turn it, oh, God, turn the volume down. Can we just wait to the next bit? But there's, I, th- I don't know whether it's a childhood association with fame, being famous meant being rich and being rich meant happy life. I think that's the association I might have had. Both my parents worked full-time when we were kids and we weren't flush there wasn't big overseas holidays. There wasn't that sort of stuff. So 
But uh, I mean, it's interesting because I haven't thought about why I want to be on the television, even though I, lo- I love it. I love everything about it. I, I, I love it. I love being at the Logies. I love, I love that stuff. I mean, I find it a punish on the night. I would much rather say yes and cancel. But <laughs> there's something about the self-congratulatory vibe of being somewhere that you always dreamt you would be. And not just being somewhere, kind of climbing perilously close to the top of the tree. And the second you get to the top of the tree, of course, you know where you're headed next. One way down. Boom. So it's very interesting because, like, I mean, I know, look, and again, I know the book's the book and, you know, it's it's fun and funny and it's a funny idea, but there is so much between this idea of lowering your expectations and then the life that you have lived, which is just a complete life of, like, raising expectations, assuming that you're going to be a star in the US, assuming you're going to be a star in the UK, assuming that you're going to be... And then it's mostly happened, by the way, like mostly in your life when you've assumed that you are going to be good at something, you have gone on to be good at it. That is, that doesn't feel to me like someone who's lowering many expectations. It didn't fit in with the joke of the book, yeah. but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're on the wrong podcast. I appreciate that's a good joke. The book's no, well, great. Also, I knew Enjoy the, the joke. Much more um, truthful, <laughs> you and I, rather than just a book promotion. But um, I think that I definitely have a... Because someone said to me um, years ago, I think that they was a very dear friend of mine. He said, I think you have happy drive. It's not like it's about all ego driven. It must be me, 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 even though I'm terribly delighted with myself. But he said, I don't, the ego, the ego side of things doesn't match with the kindness. So he said, been observing you over these years, I feel like you've got a happy drive. And that's, that definitely informs uh, the way I work. I'm, you know, I, I, I um I don't know that I can't do something, so I just do it. And so you look like you should do it. So like sewing, I just figured I didn't know I couldn't do it. So sure, I'll make that outfit. I mean, it's not very good. So <laughs> I feel like that's – so I, of course I can read auto cue. <laughs> of course I can stand out in 40-degree heat and, and host the jungle. That just, why wouldn't I be – I can do that zip line. I can do that. So that blind self-confidence, I, mean, I, can, I guess it can um, put you in a few tricky situations, but I, I think that is definitely part of my – my drive and my, and also I want money. Yeah, so money is part of it, right? The uh, money, the money like- is. It's not like to have amazing things and whatever. It's not about that or a big, big fancy house. It's not about that. It's about I'm not going to have to be scabby with the lights when I'm seventy. Mm. <laughs> I'm very interested in setting up that other side of life where you really are entitled to all, a little bit more of that relaxation. But I don't want to then have all my fun up front and then just be in a terrible situation. And so this 70-year-old lady, Julia Morris, is she still, like, on television? Is she still entertaining people or is she retired? Oh, I've got two children. I'm going to be working till I'm dead, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever going to get off the payroll. I can see it coming a mile off. But I've also done some um, CBT adjustments, some cognitive behavioural therapy adjustment to the fact that maybe the children are going to be at home a lot longer and on the payroll a lot longer. That seems to be the trend. So I decided last year that I'm happy with that. I'm, ha- I'm happy for them to be around. They're, they're lovely. So that's fine. So that means, and also, as Dan said, I'll annoy the living fuck out of him if I'm at home mm. in retirement. He's like, oh, yeah, you need some buffer. 
You need to do. You need to step out and do a little bit of work, surely. <laughs> well, I like that. So that's cool. So America. Let's touch on that a little bit because that's where we kind of, you know, we're catching up a bit when we were both over in America. And obviously, you know, the possibilities of even it feels so foreign at the moment. Like I, I my, I actually assume that actually maybe even last month my work visa ran out, but I hadn't been back there for like a year and a half. Obviously, you know, there was. I was going to go back last year and do some work, but obviously that's not something that happened last year and probably not something that is possibly going to happen this year. And I haven't even looked into reapplying for a work visa to go back there and, and try to work because that country seems like it's in so much trouble at the moment. It feels like it'd be a little foolhardy to throw yourself into that just for the sake of going on the road and telling some jokes. But Oh, what- my God. It, well, it's, uh, I mean, it, for, uh, and also we're being obviously fed whatever media is chucked our way, but even from friends on the ground, and no doubt you'll still have loads of mates that are still there, you know, it's, it's really not a good situation. And I feel like over the last 12 months is the first time that my Hotel California has uh, dissolved because that feeling when you are there in Los Angeles. So as a result of me going to the Montreal Festival where I would have seen you, I picked up an agent and then ended up being, um, she's, I went over for about 12 weeks just to, just to see the lay of the land with the children, like um, uh, little mini, Sophie would have been about one, one and a half maybe, and therefore Ruby would have been three and a half. So I, we had littlies and we just thought we'll go over and I, I think I'd just done a commercial. So we had the money to say, okay, we can ha- we can be off work for two months. Let's go and check it out. And after those twelve mo- uh, two months, you know what that smell is like in Los Angeles and Hollywood in particular, that smell that something's about to happen any second, <laughs> that I can't even go home for two days because I've got a feeling that something's going to happen. It's, it's, it's palatable. It's amazing. It's so nuts. I think it's what the song Hotel California is all about. Any second it's going to blow for me here. And, it just didn't. And I went to loads of auditions, loads. Oh my God. Thousands of auditions for sitcoms. And I was just in that. I was, um, I was not big enough to be considered a, a bigger actress. And I certainly wasn't the same cookie cutter, thin girl coming through the door. So they just weren't even bothering to look, as you know, in the, the casting process, they're looking for reasons to delete. Could be the color of your skirt, delete, delete. So I started at drama school I thought I'll reignite some of that. Um, Somebody said to me the best way to get through Los Angeles because it can be a very lonely, weird town. And as as you say, you know, we can catch up with our five Aussies, but you want to feel like you're advancing if you're spending time away from earning at home. So um, I went to drama school to get some of that skills sharp. I thought maybe I'm not maybe I'm not doing it right. But what that gave me was 28 new mates that were sort of in a similar situation, new, new friends, and, and, and this unadulterated uh, glory of being able to talk about the industry without it sounding wanky. It was, it was refreshingly freeing. It was cool to be around people that just wanted to talk about the state of television, how it worked, like television, movies, drama, all, all of the above. And we end up staying for two years, but every five weeks, Will, because of the not earning – I would have to travel home to Australia to do a week or two weeks of stand-up gigs and then fly back. That's when doing Good News Week. So come home, do, do Good News Week, do some touring dates, and then I'd fly back. So I was missing for a good two weeks of every 
month really and just sort of left the family having a bit more stillness in Los Angeles. But <laughs> the other side of Los Angeles, of course, is there is a lovely life to be had there, but I think you have to be doing well to live it. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think you, what you stumbled on very well is the idea that it is a town that can kill you with kindness. You know, the, you know, the idea that nobody ever really gives you a firm no, like nobody ever really taps you up because they don't want to be the person who told, you know, Ryan Gosling or, you know, Steve Martin or something that they weren't going to make it in that town. So everyone's kind of, there's never really somebody who'll just come along and just say, maybe this isn't going to work out for you. I met with somebody from the, um, uh, what is it, the Morris Age? Agency. What's no, not the Morris Agency. Oh, I can't remember. One of the big William, agencies. William Morris. William was Morris. William, Morris, Morris, yeah. William yeah. Morris. And there was this amazing woman, and she said to me, um, she goes, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, you're 40. Um, you got a big Ew. career at home. I don't understand what you're doing here. And quite frankly, I feel like it's going to be a long time for you to cut through to start to make. So certainly in the sitcom world in Los Angeles or, or in America, you'd start with maybe a tiny guest spot, then a slightly bigger guest spot, then a slightly bigger. Then you start to get, you know, maybe if you're lucky, a series regular where you're on the show every week. Maybe that like, so she said those steps up in there, they're just going to take too long. And she was the only, she's like, and I just feel like if you were 30, maybe, but 40, and even though it sounds hardcore, it was absolutely factual and it really got me thinking. And the other person who made a big difference was my, the drama, my drama, the principal of the school. And she was saying, she was the one who made the observation about you're not big enough to be a big actress and you're not small enough to be everybody else. So you're in this weird invisible space. So you either put on weight or lose weight because where you are is missing. So they were the only two people I feel like industry-wise who were incredibly honest with me instead of all the, you're the saviour of comedy, you're the most amazing person. You know, you go to a meeting at a network and there's 15 people in the room. You couldn't feel more important. Then you don't hear from <laughs> Then you don't hear from 15 people. I've obviously said something terribly wrong. I've been cancelled. I didn't even know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and there is something about that, isn't there? There is a cultural cringe to Australia that has a sense of that it's more important to go overseas and be doing something that you don't want to do versus being at home doing something that you do enjoy doing that, like, is paying your bills and that you're having a good time and that you're getting to be a creative artist. I mean, you, I look at what you guys do on the jungle show and it genuinely has that sense of you know my dad's got a barn let's put on the show you know it every week you are just making this like silly little variety show it's so silly it's literally a comedy show and not a lot of people i mean obviously the viewers who who love it and love the the format they're definitely onto it but if you just see the odd commercial as someone eating like you know a buffalo anus whatever mm. it's not a million years you could think that that could be a comedy show but they're be i mean we also have a great luxury on the jungle which is not something that we get a lot in comedy in television is we get a full full rehearsal from go to woe uh for each show prop like you never really get to the end of the rehearsal no matter what show you're like oh, we'll just do the end bit whatever and we get time to really massage and shape those jokes so they do look quite throwaway on the day. 
and so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of joy in getting to work out where those jokes are going to be placed and how they're going to run in order to have the let's throw a sheet over the hills hoist vibe of we're just in your backyard and be mucking around but it's been you know good fun shaping that what's your favorite part of the process seeing myself on the television in the monitor no i'm joking um what is my favorite part of the process laughing 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 knowing a joke is coming laughing at how it just went making other people laugh making the crew laugh nothing like making the crew laugh (laughs) because other people sometimes will just do like polite laughing like in television shows when they're in an audience (laughs) no make the crew like as soon as you see black shoulders you know because everyone has to wear black clothing so they're not seen if the camera swings around as soon as you see the little black polo shirt shoulders going like that you know you're onto a winner yeah okay that's cool i like that that's a really good philosophy to have to work so tell me what was your favorite is there a television job that you've loved the most is there something that you've done in your career where you go this is like the ultimate ultimate sort of julia on stage i think that the jungle is that show of all of the shows the jungle is definitely the first time first time that I feel like I've been allowed off the leash and trusted. I feel like the grown-ups definitely let me play, whereas there's another uh, whole set of people who are kind of like, oh, God, she's going to say something any minute we're all going to be in trouble. There's definitely those sort of people. But um, ITV and Channel 10 who make The Jungle, they're just like, like, Go hard. As long as I'm not rude, racist, like as long as you're not any of the naughty stuff, um, it's this wonderful freedom to, I like, I would physically throw myself across the studio with no fitness, no protection, don't know how to fall. I, I just find all of that stuff so much fun to do. And this is the first show that I've actually, I think, been allowed to be, even though the volume's up on my mentalness, that's the closest to the sort of fun I like having when I'm on stage. Okay, so here's my question. Why, um, and this maybe is a little bit of an awkward question, but, I, you know, I ask it with love. Um, why, you know, isn't there, because I look at you and I look at what you do, and I know there's been, like, attempts to do this over the years, but I just don't quite understand why, you know, say, like, there's not an Australian Graham Norton show that you're hosting, you know, or some similar sort of thing. What is it that it's meant? Is it something culturally about Australia? Is it something about the industry? Has the right opportunity just not arisen at the right time for things to work? Why is it that, you know, you're not the host of a Graham Norton-style talk show or, or, you know, something similar. That might not be your dream, but just something that where you can really showcase those things on a, even a more regular basis than the Jungle Show. I wonder if, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but I wonder if I appear, because you've got, like when we're talking now, we're talking like two normal human beings, right? But when you're doing, a, when you're trying to promote a book or you're trying to promote a tour, there's this electric version of you that's all on broadcast, 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 broadcast. So I wonder if maybe the directors of television would think that I would not be very good at asking the questions considering I am on broadcast so much. <laughs> That's the only thing that I can think of. That and we don't, I mean, as you know, we don't make any 
mm. of those nighttime shows. You would think in the current climate, blah, 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 that a woman would be amazing, that it's if it's someone you can trust, tra-la-la. But the, the other side of that, of course, is that the guest is the star. So I don't know that I have that air of humility I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I would love to do a show like I that. Mean, I think I'd be you, great at you, it. You argue that the guest is a star, but I actually think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how those shows work. Like, you know, David Letterman was the star of Letterman and Conan O'Brien was the star of Conan. Like, I mean, though you 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 tune in every week for them. You yes, you would like the guest to be, you know, like given an opportunity to promote what they're doing, but you're tuning in because of the star of the show, not the other way around. And if it relies on someone tuning in only because they like the guest, that is a very unsustainable business model for a show like that. True. I did um uh I did have a, a network executive say to me a couple of years ago, not a network that I work for. But um, it was in a conversation about, I mean, a boring technical conversation, but it was we were in a conversation about how the really big network deals kind of fell over. So um, or each of the major commercial networks would have a buyout deal, say, for example, uh, with CBS, where they buy a lot of CBS's content, all the shows that they make then go onto Channel 10, which is why you would, in those days, you would have got whatever. That, that's yeah. and. But that's all just broken down in the last couple of, with all the streaming services and different shows going to different places. Now the individual relationships that you have with each of those production companies or individually with the networks because you're buying single shows, you're not buying big packages of shows anymore. So all of a sudden some old school relationships between Australia and Los Angeles started to be more valuable than they'd been. There'd been lots of people moved to the back room because we didn't know what to do with them, but they're great employees. Now they've come to the star in front. And I'm like, I think that's really cool that that personal relationship will be the one that gets the best show and gets to buy it and therefore make their advertising money. (laughs) And the network executive said, go guys like this. You're actually quite smart. Oh, yeah. So, females, chip, chip, chip. Don't want to talk about the ceiling. It's very draining getting caught up in the, oh, why is me because I'm a lady. But, my God, you still see heaps of examples of it. So I have a feeling if any of the networks wanted to do a nighttime show, they would still be looking at male hosts. Honey pee. I mean, it's true. And look, yes, you don't want to get bogged down in the the same conversation because it is so draining on the person who has to have that conversation continually. But the reference point that I bring up is that I remember being a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid sitting at home watching Wendy Harmer host the big gig. And, you know, like she had... Like she was the ringmaster of what would have been the toughest show on television. To oh, host, you can know? you imagine harnessing all of those maniacs? All of them and different directions, shot in the round, like cameras coming from all over the place, this big sort of, you know, live comedy, you know, experience. And and yet then they just felt like for 30 years they didn't let anybody else do that again. Like you, you've already seen someone do it. Like it's not like you nail it. <laughs> She nailed it, but um, I know definitely because um, I've got spies everywhere, you see. I hear all sorts of little feedback because the one uh, thing that I tried to do, there was a real turning point around the apprentice part of my career 
that's when I was in Los Angeles and I'd done all sorts of like little funny shows. To be honest with you, in the early parts of my career, I took whatever television came my way and it was always very commercial. It was always quite daggy, but not only did that suit me, uh, I, I loved the money and I loved every single job I would pour my heart into. So I'm like, this is the cool job now. They might not have been the coolest jobs on television, but they'd certainly lead me to that next thing. And then there's this turning point that you get to where you don't have to do everything that's offered. All of a sudden you can actually be a bit more discerning and that's when some of the cooler work comes your way. And I feel that switched over for me when I did The Celebrity Apprentice, which would be 10 years ago now, because all of a sudden I got to speak as myself instead of like, hey, guys, oh, my God, and here's a joke and here's a joke and it's not even a very good one, Woohoo! Or, oh, this is me trying to be naughty, aren't I kooky, whatever. So turning away that volume and turning up the, um, oh, my God, I think this guy's a dick, and getting that slightly more lo-fi version of me, that's when my work really started to kick up. And all of a sudden I was definitely being um, considered for hosting big formats. But then I was being very, very overmanaged by whoever put me in place because I was so, I mean, they'd already done the brave thing by employing me. I mean, I don't know how brave it is, but anyway, they'd already done the big job by getting me on the job. Then to micromanage, there was one show I did, really big format, and one of the EPs would come back during each of the ad breaks, Will, and go like this. You sound like a drag queen. You're being, you sound screechy. Then in the next one, they come out and they'd be like, your energy's too low. You need to, you need to pump up. Next one. You sound, while you're filming a 19-hour day. You're like, <laughs> In the end, you're like, I don't know who to please. I'm not doing it right. I don't know what to do. So that's why I say the jungle, they've just, no one has overmanaged me on that. I've just been allowed to do my thing and they know, you know, within confines that I'm incredibly trustworthy. I'm not going to take it to into spooky town. Such a huge mistake that is made. And look, I understand, but my philosophy has always been like, if you like somebody, hire them let them do their job and if it doesn't work or if it doesn't work for what you're doing then you just say well thank you this isn't the right match we're gonna have to look for something else but just let them live and die by their own work and their own choices and their own it never helps to do be you doing- know um finally on the for the finale episode i decided just to be myself I, i'd been so over managed through the whole thing i mean honestly it was just so hardcore by the finale i was just like you know what i'm just gonna be me <laughs> Because what uh, what um, I don't necessarily want to you know yeah. name and shame the show whatever, but I then got out there and I, I looked like I was having so much fun, and that is that is the key to any success that I've had is the more fun I look like I'm having, um, the more fun the audience are having, and then hopefully that would lead to another job. Well, it leads me to a question that I like to ask regularly on this, which is like, so who is Lady Julia Morris at her best? When you're at your best, what does that look like? Oh, it looks like um, I've got um, a merry halo of showbiz lights. <laughs> <laughs> Just feels like one of those, woo! And what about the opposite? What's like when you're at your worst, when you're looking at yourself and you're going, ah, this is not a good place for me to be in. What does that look like? Um, on the um, days I can't get out of bed, where I just can't be bothered. 
We're just like, oh, I've definitely had um, bouts at different times of just everything. Usually it's when, uh, during the high, high, high octane work times and you finally get a two-minute break or when that show ends. And I know you have an inevitable crash every time a show ends anyway. That's because of all the adrenaline you've been pumping to, you know, make those eight weeks work. Um, but the kind of like, well, Dan's going to pick up the girls and he'll drop them off for school. So I don't even really understand why I would be getting out of bed today. And that day leads to, I think I might do it again today. It felt so good yesterday. And that day leads to, you know, fuck it. I'm not, I'm not even going to bother. And there certainly was a, um, we moved to Sydney the year before last. I wanted to be near my parents. I just thought there's so many meetings. I was having to commute so much and I love, I love Melbourne with all of my heart, but I just needed to be back in, you know, my city again. <laughs> I moved all the family up there and we'll, it was a disaster. So the job I moved up for didn't really move forward. The girls were really, my youngest was quite ill and my eldest was just going, she was going into year seven and was so distressed by life. I was just like, oh, I have fucked this family. I've taken them out of their little warm, mm-hmm. yummy Melbourne gorgeous bed and I have just thrown them onto the train tracks is how it felt. And certainly by, we, we ended up moving back six months later, but certainly towards the end of that six months, that uh, uh, last month, I reckon, I reckon there would have been, I would have spent about three weeks in bed. And I was just like, this is not good. I didn't know how to fix the problem because I'm a great people pleaser and a great try, you know, fixer. Um, I, I didn't think that I was... Uh, tablet depressed, which I've got no issue with. I'd go on them in a heartbeat if I thought that was right for me. Um, but I think I was, well, I don't think I was, I was situationally depressed. Mm-hmm. And in speaking, I mean, I've got my guru that I speak to all the time and she's like, so do you think that if you, if you were out of this exact situation, you know, would you, do you think that that would, you would have a better state of mind? And, and I'm like, Absolutely. She's like, this is situational. Change the situation no matter what that is. And I, she didn't say those exact words, but whatever. And that's when I had, I, th- I said, I think I'm moving back to Melbourne. I don't know how to live my life in Sydney and I don't feel like I have the time to sort it out. Whereas I knew, I knew how to live my life in Melbourne. I know how everything works and I know the girls are very happy there. So I'm going to take out this amount of problems even if we've still got that where we're left with, let's just move back. So my, my dream of being closer to my parents, now um, I just try and fly up and see them, you know, once every six or seven weeks. But, of course, with COVID, my goodness, I've just all last year I was like, oh, pick the right year to move back to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 33 weeks in my house. This better be good, Melbourne. <laughs> and then I was made Queen of Moomba, so it was totally good. <laughs> Uh, so they were going to cancel Moomba this year, but I think it's back on. There was I know, a I think reversal. people were so looking forward to it. So, um, But having said all of that, at the, me at, the, at my very lowest point, I think that that's the way I deal with it. I, I find great comfort uh, in the bed for deleting life as I know it at that time. We've touched on this one a little bit, but um, uh, what do you think is the biggest misconception about you that people might have? Um, the biggest misconception would be that I'm <laughs> super fun. 
<laughs> oh my god! Well, I tell you what, since the menopause, will fucking hell! I mean, batting down the hatches, mummy get a bit grumpy, <laughs> and I'm um, I feel like I might be. I'm certainly not politically, but I feel like somewhere in me, I might be a bit more conservative than I sell. Oh, okay, maybe. Like I, I, I lead quite a sensible life. I run a very sensible home. I'm, I, I'm not. Um, woo, mummy's just having wine for dinner. I'm not that person. So that probably, but I'm a big party girl. Would probably be because the the party will is in my mouth. But I won't be attending the party because I will have cancelled just before. <laughs> uh, what do you think happens when we die? What do you think happens when we die? What do you think happens when we die? I don't know. I mean, I know because I saw Dan die. Uh, he came back to life, though, but he had an anaphylactic shock one day and died. So I do know that you you let the balloon go with the old woohoo uh, down below. Um, what do you happen? I don't know. I got, I'm, I'm concerned about being burnt into the ash, but I don't mind the surface area. But could I? I might be made into a diamond, or is that too egotistical? I don't know. I'm not. I don't know whether we make a comeback. I don't know. And I'm happy to be proven wrong on my um, on my amateur atheism. Do you, I mean, do you care? Do, does the idea of death, like, is it into your mind? Is there part of, like, you know, your, you know, life that is so filled with things that is, you know, some sort of this is the life that we have, therefore um, I'm going to fill it with as many things as possible, even if I'm going to cancel some of those things at the last moment? Or does it not have anything to do with death at all? Do you not really think about it? No, I don't. Uh, I don't. I kind of assume I'm going to live into my 80s. I assume, um, I mean, I hope it's quick. I hope I literally just have a little nap time and don't wake up. Um, I like to think that everything's in place, you know, certainly with uh, raising two ladies. I need them to be complete humans uh, before I'm ready to clog pop. But also I'm not afraid of it. I'm like, I've had a lot, you know, I've had a bit of cancer through my life, so I've faced it a, a couple of times. Not not death, but faced the idea of it many times, from malignant melanomas uh, to, I don't know, all, all sorts of bits and pieces. So you kind of, yeah, well, whatever, I'll just deal with that when it comes. I'll see you later, hopefully. When, when you're gone, do you care about being remembered? Is that important to you? I mean, like, I mean, by your family, sure, of course, but do you care about being remembered by... Yeah. Do you know what? My girls aren't really sure who Madonna is. Mm. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? So I'm yeah. figuring, I, I think I, I might have come to rest with that a long while ago mm. where you're just like, they, I mean, I wouldn't even bother to I even say the words Bob Hope to them. So they, I mean, if we can't remember one of the greatest global stars to ever <laughs> breathe. Right. Does anyone going to care about me? Whatever. I'm going to punch it for now. And then I don't know if anything survives later. Unreal. I mean, I tell you what, there's bound to be a story about me at some point just for the sheer survival rate. The 75 years in the business. 
Well, I mean, that, and the string of shows you will have done by then. I mean, it's already a pretty impressive resume because <laughs> you started reasonably young. But by the time you're 75, that is going to be a very, very big IMDb <laughs> entry. Uh, sometimes I don't even bother updating it. Do you know what I mean? There's just too much there. Whatever. What is what is uh, 75-year-old uh, Julia Morris going to look like? Do you think? I'm what going is, to um, yeah. um, be getting everything out of the wardrobe, all the glitter. I'm going to be in sequence most of the time because, I now, after all those years of being given all of those amazing gowns, it's starting to look a little bit like a hoarder. I mean, it's very well, um, I've got it all filed, all those all those dresses, but I figure, I mean, there's too many beautiful, it's not like you can give them to charity. Oh, here's a here's some couture. <laughs> I, it's, I mean, I don't know, I've probably said that wrongly, but I've sort of got a bit of a library together of amazing, amazing clothes. So I feel like. I should look like a slightly nutty uh, mid-aged lady and get some of those gowns out and just start wearing them for no reason. Uh, do you have role models? Is there anyone that you you know look up to? No, no is a perfectly acceptable answer to any of these questions. By the way, you don't have to have. I like the idea that you know perhaps you're just self-made and you've just you know sort of styled styled your life on yourself. Yeah. I, uh, it's not even that I'm into, into the self-homage, but who do I look up to? I mean, I know when we stop speaking and I chillax, I'll be like, well, I look up to them, I look up to them, I think they're amazing. I mean, I'd love to say something super intelligent and cool like Quentin Bryce, who's incredible, who has a lot of really cool stuff to say or, you know, I really love uh, and so on. There's loads of worthy people. But there's no one I really think about. (laughs) 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 I'm too busy just chipping through the day. What uh, gets you angry? Is there anything that gets you angry? It would surprise you. Mm. I mean, being in a hotel room that's expensive and being asked to take the garbage out. Oh, my God. (laughs) If you want to hear me com-splaining that down at the front desk when I check out. (laughs) Uh, What about the world makes you the most angry? When you look at the world itself, what frustrates you the most? Um, uh, Injustice on every level, everywhere. Uh, if If a story comes out about me that's not true, I could almost turn myself inside out, blue in the face till I prove it. I will hold that and be trying to prove it 50 years later. I'll never let it go. So, yeah, that's not a great quality. Uh, If I had a magic wand and I could give you any skill in the world, like you don't have to do your 10,000 hours to learn how to do it. You just magically have this skill and you can interpret skill in in whatever way you would like. Um, What would you love to have the ability to do? What would I love to do? What skill? Obviously, unfortunately, with my blind self-confidence of just I didn't Mm. know I couldn't do it it anyway, I'd love to be able to sew beautifully, I think. Yeah, a um, master couturier, that would suit me down to the ground. It just makes some amazing frocks. What's the uh, best bit of advice anyone ever gave you? Always acknowledge, never approach, uh, which is contrary to what I say in my book, but always acknowledge, never approach. So if you go into a room, acknowledge, but don't approach. Because the second you approach, people are like, oh, oh, just finishing off a conversation. And, you're, and so you're now like, oh, featured extra on the outskirts. But in my book and in my character, I say blow through every one of those groups of people and take over. Tell your five best stories and then leave. 
Um, what's the worst piece of advice that you ever got? Do you remember somebody giving you a dodgy piece of advice at some stage or a piece of advice that just turned out wasn't true? Please grow your hair. You look like a lesbian and it's not the sort of image <laughs> the network are projecting. <laughs> You're just like, what? <laughs> I mean, that was back in the days when you were allowed to say lesbian. Oh, boy. When you were allowed oh. to say, like, super offensive things to your female employees. Um, I mean, it's not if, offensive to be called lesbian, please. I mean, you know, no. all cats are black at night. But um, the mere suggestion that my hairdo is leading people to believe I am uh, uh, leaning in my life sexually in my bedroom one way or the other doesn't really make sense to me. In, inappropriate to bring up, Tiger. Yeah. <laughs> not, 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 not really relevant to what we're doing here. <laughs> Got to be honest with you, mate. Yeah. Like a, oh, my God, like a four-wheel drive mum. Come on, I um, if I could give you any dream job in the world, like, you know, blank check, you know, blank opportunity, work with whoever you want, do whatever it is that you would like to do, what is that job? Uh, what is that job? Whatever it is, it'll be a TV show having a lot of fun, but shot in Melbourne so I can come home each night. <laughs> Okay. And finally, this is the final question. Let's plug the new book one more time. It is called... Julia Morris Makes It Easy. And people can find it... Audible, where I give an amazing stand-up vibe performance of the book. That was a very good plug, by the way. Well <laughs> you see how I switch? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was good. I'll, I'll do a plug at the top as well. They'll have already heard a plug. It's fine, but it's good to... Plug City. It's good to have another plug at the end as well. And uh, hopefully people will get to see you do stand-up at some stage, uh, you know, this year, but if not, at some stage in the future. Uh, all right. So, okay, final question. I have a time machine. I do not have a time machine. I legally need to point that out. But I have a time machine for the purposes of this question. Yes. It goes. It goes forward. It goes backwards. It goes to any point in history. It does not matter where it goes. You can visit yourself. You can change something in your life. You can give yourself some advice. You can observe a moment in your life. You don't have to worry about, you know, buggering the space-time continuum. But you don't have to. You can just go and visit somewhere, hang out somewhere, you know, uh, forward or back. Where would you like to go? I think I would like to go... Uh, see, do you know, I don't mind going... I don't, I don't really need to go back in time because there's nothing I want to change. I mean, I'm sure there's people you'd like to meet, whatever, dinner party, yeah, it'd be amazing. Um, but I have no desire to go back and change anything I've done. Um, but I wouldn't mind a little relaxation window into the future, particularly um, with the girls, just to make sure they're okay. I know there's nothing I could probably do about it, but I wonder if that would either lead to more stress in seeing what they're up to in 10 years or less stress knowing everyone's going to be okay. It's that's just a weird anxiety that uh, with the time machine, I would also have a bit of anxiety choosing where to go. What's um, the most important thing for you when it comes to the girls and where they go in their life? Like if you could say one thing is the most important thing, what is it? Um, to have a sense of calm, to have a sense of calmness, because with calmness, I think comes um the, while mania and all the good fun stuff and, ha you know, uh, the pursuit of happiness uh, is just such bullshit. It's uh, I try and encourage the girls to have happier moments in each day. I'm like, it's never going to be a – it's not really a destination. So it's about more laughs each day, basically. If you can get more laughter into your day, um, that's – yeah, that's there's, there's no point – you know, the pursuit of happiness, it doesn't exist. 
Actually, the book is very much about, even though it's a complete piss take, there is a very gentle overriding arc, which is exactly that. You know, it's just to get happy but not uh, seek happiness because it doesn't exist. So I think calm is the one thing that I would want. It's a nice way to end. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. It was so nice to see you. So nice to have a catch up with you. I hope that we get to do it in person at some stage in the near future. I absolutely love you to death. You too. You Absolutely you too. Thank you for doing this today. Pleasure. 